Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Welcome back to Littler's New York City podcast on employment law for employers. I am Emily Haig, an attorney in the law firm of Littler Mendelssohn in the Manhattan office. I'm here with my colleague, Devjani Mishra, who joined Littler as a shareholder earlier this year after spending years as an in-house counsel for a global company. Today, we're going to give you the inside scoop on some brand new New York City workplace laws. First, we're going to discuss the New York City Cooperative Dialogue Law, and then we're going to jump in and discuss the New York City Lactation Accommodation Law. Both of these laws only apply to employers with a presence in New York City. Devjani, let's talk about Cooperative Dialogue. What the heck is it? Uh, Thanks, Emily. Cooperative Dialogue is something that has gotten a lot of attention and uh, on the one hand appears to just be tweaking parts of existing law a little bit, but on the other hand, add some pretty significant new requirements for New York City employers. Where it comes from is that the New York City Council voted to pass this bill in December of 2017, and it went into effect on October 15, 2018, uh, which is why employers may have recently been seeing a lot of news related to cooperative dialogue. The actual enactment is uh, several months old, but it being in place and actually effective is a new thing. So this new law amends the New York City Human Rights Law, which is quickly becoming one of the strongest sets of protections for employees anywhere in the country. And the amendments require most employers to engage in what is called a cooperative dialogue uh, when an employee makes a request for an accommodation that is related to the employee's religious beliefs or disability or pregnancy, childbirth, or a related condition, or when the employee requests an accommodation that is related to the employee having been a victim of domestic violence, sexual violence, or stalking. And so our listeners are probably familiar with the reasonable accommodation requirement under federal law for individuals with sincerely held religious beliefs or practices and for qualified individuals with disabilities. And New York City law, in addition to covering those groups, had already in the past extended accommodation requirements to a broader group of employees than federal law does. So this new amendment doesn't actually expand the number of protected classes or the circumstances in which an employer needs to provide accommodations to their city-based employees. What it does is that it adds procedures that employers need to follow carefully when they receive a request for accommodation. Okay, so it is mostly a procedural change on how employers must respond to requests for accommodation. What procedurally is required from a New York City employer when a request for accommodation comes in? So this is basically right. It is mostly a procedural change. What the law requires employers to do is to first engage in good faith in a written or oral dialogue to discuss what the employee is requesting by way of accommodation. This is important because there may have been cases in the past where employers, you know, already knew right away that the requested accommodation either would not work, could not be made, or had been turned down in the past. Here, uh, there is an obligation to engage in good faith in the dialogue with the employee. The uh, employer is also obligated to suggest potential alternatives that may address the employee's accommodation needs if the employer cannot grant 
uh, what is initially requested. And after this process of dialogue is complete, the law requires employers to memorialize in writing whether an accommodation has been granted or denied and what the accommodation is, and then provide that report or that memo document, whatever it may be, to the employee who requested the accommodation or to a person who requested the accommodation on behalf of the employee. So that documentation piece, the dialogue and the documentation of the dialogue, are really the key elements of the new law. Yes, what really stands out is the written component to this new law. At the end of every request for accommodation, even if it is simply for a new chair because of back issues, for example, the employer and the employee should both have a form documenting the result of the dialogue. Is there any bite to this law? What are the repercussions if a New York City employer does not follow these procedural steps? It's an interesting question because, again, the law is new and, and there haven't been many cases under it yet. Uh, there are probably some being filed as we record this podcast today. But what the law does is it makes failing to engage in the dialogue a standalone violation of the human rights law. So it's not just, you know, the overall or principal claim of some sort of disability discrimination or religious discrimination, but the failure to engage in the dialogue is a standalone violation. And that is similar to federal law that makes failure to accommodate a violation. However, what the city law does is it also states that failing to provide a copy of the written documentation to the employee is itself an independent violation of the human rights law. So uh, it's almost like when you go into a store and there's a sign that says, if you don't get a receipt, your purchase is free. In this case, if you don't have the documentation, even if the accommodation may have been granted, there is an independent violation there. And I think it remains to be seen whether individuals will attempt to file these claims in cases where they got the underlying accommodation that they wanted. Uh, Probably it's more likely Uh, that you could see a claim where an individual gets something slightly different from what they asked for. But I think, you know, looking ahead for many employers, particularly if they are smaller organizations or uh, places where people have worked together for a long time and know each other well, uh, accommodation currently may be a very informal process. You know, I've certainly seen situations where a manager maybe has been making adjustments to an employee's schedule for years, you know, letting someone come in late on certain days and make up the time later, or making some other kind of exception in a really informal way. And HR or office administration may not even have this on the radar as something that is being done or adjusted, uh, and they certainly don't have anything written down. So with this new requirement, you'll probably see a lot of employers becoming much more formal about this process because they want to avoid, you know, the documentation claim. And employers will need to take stock of the various accommodations that are probably already going on in their workplaces, you know, in an informal way. You know, none of this is to suggest that anyone's existing accommodation should be taken away. Uh, It's more about employers making sure that they have visibility into different arrangements that have been made and that they put a process in place for them. Um, You know, as they say, you don't know what you don't know. And so I think a lot of employers will need to adopt more formal procedures, and that may unfortunately result in a little bit less flexibility around these arrangements and for employees. 
the word dialogue within cooperative dialogue strikes me as ripe for misinterpretation. It implies to me that the employer should probe into the employee's need and reason for the need. For example, I can imagine a manager getting into the weeds and asking some personal questions when a subordinate asks for time off to attend a hearing, for example, to get a restraining order because of domestic violence. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, that's a great question, Emily, and, and I think one thing that we always have to be cognizant of in this area of the law is that, you know, when you're dealing with human resources issues, uh, fundamentally any policies and procedures and rules that we have to follow have to be carried out by human beings. And so, you know, intuitively, you know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Someone may be presented with a request and start asking questions. It may come from a place of concern, it may come from a place of no ill intent whatsoever. Uh, but the thing that our uh, clients and employers need to be aware of at all times is that there's a number of other New York laws that also intersect with this cooperative dialogue requirement. And so one example is the Earned Sick and Safe Time Act, which is also a fairly new law here in New York City and provides that employees can take safe time for various covered purposes. And one of those purposes is when an employee or a covered family member is the victim of domestic violence and needs to obtain services or participate in legal proceedings. And that same law, while providing that safe time for employees, also restricts employers in the types of questions they can ask when an employee asks for safe time. You know, the employee needs to confirm uh, that they are seeking safe leave and, you know, provide certain kinds of documentation. But at the same time, the employee can't be required to provide the details of the underlying incident. And so the employer needs to tread very carefully here and walk a fine line between, you know, confirming that the request is legitimate and that it can be accommodated and, on the other hand, invading the privacy of the employee when a request is made and, you know, You've got to do that at the same time that you're engaging in a dialogue. So uh, this is not by any means an easy area, and uh, we will be posting links in the podcast feed uh, so that our listeners can read up on some of these laws that may have gone by quickly earlier in the year. Oh, boy, Devjani, you just mentioned another new New York City law, which is the second safe time. Can you just quickly expand on what that is? Sure. So on May 5th of this year, New York City added safe time into what already existed as sick time under the New York City paid sick leave law. And so safe time expands the list of covered reasons for which paid time can be taken so that it now includes when the employee or a family member has been the victim of a family offense matter, sexual offense, stalking, or human trafficking. And so employees can use sick time not only for the purposes that they could already use it, but also for these safe time purposes. And as I mentioned, employers cannot require documentation to specify what the details of the underlying matter is as a condition of providing safe time to an employee. Uh, and any information that is provided, uh, even if it's provided voluntarily by the employee, needs to be treated as you know, absolutely confidential and kept separate from other personnel records. And again, we will be posting some links to the statute and our advisories on it in the podcast feed. 
in trying to understand how these laws intersect, if we follow those rules you just outlined, do we also have to follow cooperative dialogue rules and produce a document stating that safe time is now approved as an accommodation? Or do you think safe time approval does not amount to accommodation under the new cooperative dialogue law? Uh, so, uh, great question, and I will give you the classic lawyer answer, which is it depends. I would say, in general, it is important to document any time off that's being used, whether it's safe time or sick time or any other time, uh, whether it's paid time or unpaid time. And you want to do this for a whole host of reasons, independent of the new, you know, cooperative dialogue and documentation requirement. Uh, you certainly need to know whether someone was working, whether they need to be paid, whether they've exhausted the leave that is, you know, due to them in a given year. But we should keep in mind that, you know, as confusing as all of these requirements are for employers, uh, they can also be really confusing to employees. Uh, they may be reading about various types of time that are available, and they may not come in asking for the right category right off the bat. Uh, so you could have cases where someone comes in and is requesting an accommodation, and really what they actually need is a day off or an adjustment to their schedule and maybe not a longer-term accommodation. So, you know, looking ahead, I think that what is likely to happen is that cooperative dialogue is going to be used to address something that requires, you know, a medium-term or a long-term accommodation more than just a day off, you know, here or there. But you may have a situation where someone initially presents asking for, you know, one day off or a use of a personal day, which we haven't talked about at all, but might be something that employer policy provides and goes through quite a, quite a ways, either using a day here or a day there or schedule change. And somewhere down the line, perhaps a few months in, the company discovers that what they should have been doing all along is discussing an accommodation and, and getting into cooperative dialogue territory. So, you know, suffice to say, employers with HR departments or office administrators, you know, should make sure that those colleagues are aware of these requirements and that they are brought into the loop rather than just this being something that a manager is handling informally. Uh, of course, many organizations don't have that luxury the manager is going to be the person who receives the information and has to make a call. And in those cases, again, it's important for managers who handle these types of requests to be aware of the different types of time that are available and not just reflexively deny a request when there might be some protection available to the employee. So, Johnny, your reference to the employee that might just need one day off or a quick scheduling change, of course, now brings up another law that this new cooperative dialogue may intersect with, and that is the new New York City temporary scheduling law. Can you briefly tell us about that? Absolutely. And again, we will have a link on this in the podcast feed. New York City has a new temporary scheduling law that went into effect on July 18th. And so for covered employers, the law provides employees with the right to request two temporary schedule changes per calendar year uh, for certain covered personal events. And um, the types of schedule changes that might be requested could range from, you know, just a limited alteration uh, in an employee's scheduled hours or a different location where the employee would be reporting to work on a given day 
There's the opportunity to use any paid time off that's accrued, to use unpaid time off, uh, potentially to swap shifts with another employee. And so there's a variety of options, but the idea is that it gives employees a little bit of flexibility for an unscheduled personal event that comes up and that's covered by the law. And so this might be something like having to deal with a backup childcare arrangement or perhaps uh, having to attend a school function for the employee's child, uh, whatever the reasoning may be, employees are given the flexibility to request this at least two times in a calendar year. Again, this may be the kind of thing in many workplaces that is already handled informally. Uh, so uh, it remains to be seen whether this new law is going to make it easier broadly for most employees to request this kind of time or whether it may end up scaling back the flexibility that certain employees had depending on how employers put this into place. So leave is definitely a hot-button topic within accommodation requests. Often the accommodation an employee needs is leave or short-term scheduling changes. So employers not only need to be aware of New York City's new leave laws, but also engage in cooperative dialogue potentially and document the accommodation or decision not to accommodate at the end of the process. What are our takeaways? What should employers do now with all of these changes that occurred in 2018? So this is a timely question, and uh, I think what employers really need to do, uh, whether working with their own HR or internal in-house counsel or whether working with outside counsel, it's really time to take a broad look at all of the employment policies that relate to both timekeeping and time off in a workplace. Even for employers who have relatively generous time off policies, there are usually notice requirements for taking that time off. And so while providing, say, three weeks of vacation to employees that can be used for various purposes might seem like it accommodates all the different time off requirements, there may be a condition in that policy that says that time has to be requested at least three months in advance or what have you. And that type of requirement has to be adjusted uh, in order to allow someone to take the time if they need it under one of these new laws. So it's it's really time to make sure that the different policies are reflective of all of the different types of leave and, and time off and schedule adjustments that are now available in New York City. It's also certainly time to create forms, uh, not only to use as documentation for the cooperative dialogue process, uh, but also just as an aid to the people who will have to enforce this. Again, it may be HR, it may be an office administrator, it may be individual line managers. It's probably helpful for them to have some kind of checklist that they can run down and make sure that they have covered all the bases of different types of laws that might apply. And uh, it, it's worth taking some time, whether it's in a meeting or some more formal setting, to make sure that managers are aware of the different types of things that employees may be asking for and or if there's an HR department that the managers know to send employees to HR with these requests. Uh, obviously, employers will need to look at how these changes may affect uh, salaried versus hourly paid employees differently and they should take a look at how they're documenting leaves in general. New York City is just one of a number of jurisdictions that have 
passed new laws and requirements in this area this year. Uh, so certainly employers with operations both in and outside New York City will need to take a look across their different locations and figure out where requirements are similar, where they may need to be adjusted, whether they may want to make their leave policies uh, a little broader, more generally, uh, in order to accommodate similar types of issues in different locations where they do business. Lastly, I just want to quickly touch upon the new New York City lactation law. As we head into 2019, it's important to know that New York City passed a new law that will go into effect on March 18, 2019, regarding lactation in the workplace. New York City employers must now, number one, have a lactation room. This is a place where nursing employees can pump milk while at work. It can't simply be the restroom. It must include a minimum of an outlet, a chair, a surface on which somebody could place a breast pump and other personal items, and nearby access to running water. We've gotten a few questions over the past few weeks about whether running water has to be in the room. It simply has to be nearby. In addition, the lactation room must be in reasonable proximity to the employee's work area. The employer also must provide a refrigerator that's suitable for breast milk storage. Also, New York City, now effective March 18, 2019, must revise their lactation policies within the workplace, and their new policy must include, at a minimum, the following five aspects. Number one, the policy must specify the means by which an employee may submit a request for use of a lactation room. Number two, it must require that the employer respond to a request for lactation room within a reasonable amount of time, which the law states must be within five business days. Number three, the policy must provide a procedure to follow when two or more individuals need to use the lactation room at the same time. Number four, the policy must state that the employer shall provide reasonable break time for an employee to express milk in the workplace. Number five, the policy must state that if the request for lactation room poses an undue hardship to the employer, the employer shall engage in what we just discussed, the cooperative dialogue. Devjani, anything to add regarding New York City's new lactation law? Uh, just a couple of points. That's a pretty good summary of, of everything that's going on. And I think it's a very timely reminder that while uh, for most of this podcast, we've been talking about accommodation in terms of things that allow an employee, you know, not to work or, you know, not to be in the workplace or to take time off or adjust their schedule. Accommodation also includes things that employers can do in the workplace to enable employees to work. And in this case, this law is really designed to support and help nursing mothers who are returning to work uh, for a period of time after they return to work. Uh, employers who are tracking this really closely may have noticed one ambiguity in the law, which is about which employers are covered by the law. Uh, at the time that the law was being enacted, uh, the city council and other sources were describing the requirement of providing a lactation room as something that would apply only to employers with 15 or more employees. Uh, however, when you look at the text of what was actually adopted, the law applies to employers who have four or more employees. And this is obviously a pretty significant difference. Uh, so this is something that we're continuing to monitor to see whether any more clarification is going to be forthcoming from the city. But in general, 
these requirements are really in keeping with other federal and state legislation in this area and are continuing to increase protections for New York City employees, in this case, by providing support to working mothers. Excellent. I think we've given you enough to think about New York City employers. Of course, if you ever want to reach out to us to discuss these new laws in more depth, please feel free to email us. Devjani's email is dmishra, D-M-I-S-H-R-A, at littler.com, and my email is e-h-a-i-g-h at littler.com. You can also reach us at 212-583-9600. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting Littler podcast about what's happening in New York State and city workplaces. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.